This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, uh, editorial director, co-founder of Craft Beer and Brewing, Jamie Bogner. My uh, guest on the episode today is Trevor Rogers, uh, co-founder of DeGard Brewing in Tillamook, Oregon. This episode is brought to you by craftbeer.com, home of the most powerful brewery locator in the universe. Whether you're traveling in a new city or planning your next beercation, head to craftbeer.com and explore the wide world of American craft beer. Want to support small and independent breweries? Look for the independent craft brewer seal when you search. Trevor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, pleasure to, to see you as always. Fantastic. We are here at the uh, Brewers Retreat in Austin, Texas. Trevor has come in to, to join us down here in Texas. We're sitting at uh, outside at the Austin Beer Garden enjoying a wonderful Pilsner. Trevor just got off of stage talking with uh, Henry from Monkish for a good two straight hours, and we appreciate you talking with us for uh, for another forty five to sixty yeah, here I, on the podcast. I think technically it was two hours and thirteen minutes, but but who's counting? Yeah, who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> Giving me the three to four minute background on uh, your brewing history and what led you to opening Degard Brewing, uh, focusing on spontaneous beers out there on the coast of Oregon. All right. Well, three to four minutes is a pretty tight parameter, but I'll do my best. Um, you know, we, my wife and I uh, come from a homebrewing background. Uh, before that, more uh, wine appreciation, wine industry. We had a love for and passion for wild beer, um, acid beer, and particularly Britannomyces complexity. Um, at the time that we were making them on a smaller scale, there wasn't a lot available in the market. Um, but we were all obviously thrilled whenever we'd find great uh, lambic or goose or, uh, or other yeah, more domestic producers available to us. After doing that for some years, um, we realized that we should at least entertain the possibility of approaching this on a broader scale. If we're struggling to find something that, that we're passionate about, that means that other people are too. And we'd like to try and uh, potentially share that with a broader audience and see if we can't um, follow our passion uh, in a, a commercial endeavor. Uh, so we... What year was this? Uh, we first started uh, brewing uh, in 2013, right at the uh, start of the year. Um, I think we started entertaining the idea of opening a brewery at the end of 2011. We, for a time, uh, pulled some yeast uh, trials up and down the coast, targeting that as a likely place for spontaneous fermentation yeast trials what does that look like that's a very good question so everything we make is spontaneously inoculated uh, and fermented um, on a commercial scale now uh, we run everything through our cool ship the freshly boiled wort uh, and it's fermented by the native yeast and bacteria found in the environment in the air uh, where we make it so when we were looking for a location that would be conducive to this we were taking uh, sanitary to sterile wort, freshly boiled, uh, run through a sanitary chiller into jars, cooling it, and then bringing it to different locations on the Oregon coast 
uh, for uh, sample inoculation and fermentations. And tracking those over time, we were kind of able to narrow it down to the county we're in. You just set up jars at various places in, the, in open air uh, down uh, the coast yeah. of Oregon. Yeah, to simplify, uh, yeah, we just uh, took, <laughs> took a sanitary wart to capture yeast right. bacteria from the air yeah. and fermented that out and just uh, tracked that by uh, sensory analysis over a long period of time uh, and finally ended up where we are in, in Tillamook itself now. And so that really was what made you select Tillamook as a location. Now, you, you had some history. You had brewed at, uh, what, Pelican before that? I, this is my first commercial brewing experience. Oh, okay. We were fortunate that our ultimate uh, destination was uh, only a 30 to 45-minute uh, drive up the road from us. Uh, at the time when we were pursuing this as a commercial endeavor, I was the assistant front of house manager at oh, okay. uh, Pelican uh, Brewing Company down in Pacific City, their original uh, brew pub location. So... It could have been a lot worse. Uh, <laughs> we could have had to, you know, move a couple or a few hours right, uh, right. in either direction. Uh, where we ultimately ended up, though, was a little bit closer to home, although yeah. we still had to relocate. Yeah. So why, as you are inspired to do this, <laughs> create a brewery with parameters like that? Again, 2011, 2012, um, you know, the world of brewing, I mean, there were 4,000 less breweries in the country at that point. Beer was... Uh, and there were certainly far less producers of sour, wild, and spontaneous beers in the country. Uh, I mean, folks had to think that, to some degree, this this might be commercial suicide. And what on earth are you going to go, you know, do making this kind of beer? How would you find an audience for it? Um, what what drove you then to to set aside any of the traditional ways of starting a brewery? You know, with a standard beer lineup and focus entirely on on these spontaneous beers. That answer might be longer than the introduction of our brewery. Um, I had a professor uh, when I was studying to be an art professor uh, who once told me, if you want to make art, you have to not be able to do anything else. Uh, it has to be such a long, uh, such a large drive in you that you don't have the option not to do it. Um, and I think that's accurate for the craftspeople that I respect the most in a lot of different industries. Um, as far as appreciation and why we went this route, again, coming from a wine appreciation uh, and industry background, the best wines in the world are a very explicit, very direct representation of the location uh, that the grapes were grown uh, and the traditions of that area. I see that same character uh, or characteristic in my favorite beers out there where they couldn't be produced somewhere else it's going to be quite different if made grown etc in a different location um, which i think is why we ended up making the type of beer we did and sought out a business trying to uh, represent that um, you know everything we do is trying to be a very uh, specific sense of location uh, and and put that um, into uh, uh, guests uh, in people's hands that's a good point. And so you are pursuing that kind of terroir. There are differing goals within the world of brewing. Um, if you look at, uh, on some larger sense, uh, the kind of competition you know, mentality that, uh, that you know, underlies a lot of the brewing world, there is this idea of you know, pursuing some sort of platonic ideal for individual styles. Um, and you know that if brewers work hard enough, they can you know perfect something along those lines. You are, in a sense, uh, eschewing that entirely and pursuing some sort of focus 
that is driven by the place you're at and not some ideal of uh, you know what beer should be. Uh, or is, is that an accurate representation? Or uh, you know, are there still flavor style uh, concerns that you uh, you know that also uh, mitigate what you do? You know, I, I think the the best brewers take a more skeptical view uh, that there there is an absolute lack of any ideal. Um, making uh, higher quality is always a goal, but higher qual- quality itself is entirely subjective and intangible. Um, the best thing we can do, and what I think the best brewers do, is entirely try and uh, better reflect their voice or their location through their beer, and try and improve upon that uh, voice itself. Um, versus trying to say this is the perfect, uh, this is uh, the the gold standard. Um, we we don't have that capability particularly, uh, other than trying to coax more out of nature, um, and work with it. Uh, so we can't drastically change our recipe uh, uh, too much. We we make minor changes in the pursuit of better representing predominantly the Britannomyces in the location. Uh, where we are, so that it meets, gets closer to some theoretical uh, and impossible uh, uh, golden perfection. So you do have that thing that you're striving after. Can you can you visualize that taste or that flavor, and do you push towards that and some some visualization of that as you as you uh, design these beers, or are you reacting to what you get from that environment? Yeah, I mean, most of what we do has to be reactionary. Uh, yeah. Since we are not the driving force of our beer, I, I firmly believe that it is uh, location-based. Um, we have to react to what nature gives us and then try and coax it in different directions. Um, as far as seeing that that perfection or, you know, notion of in our beer, you know, we have uh, blends that we love more than others, uh, that we occasionally, like, you know, get that glimpse of, like, this is, this is it. Uh, we're blending a... A beer yesterday and one of the barrels you know it it just sings yeah and how best to get that representation how to carry that how to how to nourish that into uh, a stronger uh, and, and yet better uh, voice is the challenge you launched a brewery and, and as everyone launches breweries um, there are time and money concerns the the beers that you launched the brewery with are not necessarily the beers that you're making now. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that process changed for you. You know, you, as you launched the brewery, had to make beers that you could sell on a, on a shorter scale. And maybe, uh, and now I know, you know, as you've told me before, the time period that your beer spends in wood has been expanding, you know, the longer the brewery has been in operation. Uh, and the resources that you have allow you to do that. How, what's that process looked like and how have, you know, those beers you make changed over time as a result of that? Yeah. Um, backtracking just a touch, uh, to, to actually answer that question, you asked, uh, what possessed us to open a brewery of a mine that we did at the time in the market, uh, uh that, that we chose to do so, um, I don't feel like it was a really a choice at that point. It's something we felt compelled to do. Yeah. Um, but in line with facilitating that, no bank would lend us money towards a brewery uh, who didn't have massive expansion plans. Right. Whose predominant production uh, was dedicated towards beers that took, you know, their their fermentation wasn't measured in months; it was in years. So we had to start with a very 
um, meager setup. Um, my wife mixed while I laid the concrete for the floors in our original facility. I did most of the electrical work. Don't tell the building inspector. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, we did everything we could. That location's gone now. Yeah, so, it is. Yeah. It is. The, the uh, evidence has been buried. True. Uh, we did everything we could uh, yeah. to, to make this happen because there wasn't any other choice. Right. Um, in line with that, you know, we we not having really any operating capital, we couldn't go in devoting everything to where our passion lays and where I think the truest expression, uh, what defines our location lays in the the you know tertiary Britannomyces character of our two year average age blends. Um, we just couldn't put beer into oak for that long right. for right. everything. We still brewed the the recipes that that are nearly everything that we brew today, but in a smaller portion, devoting more effort towards. It's funny to say it, but you know, quick turnaround beers, which for us was like less than a year. <laughs> right, you know, right. uh, so we had you know, uh, recipe four, to, four to six months, maybe quick turnaround in your world for, for most brewers out Man, there. I think, right? I think uh, our yeah. first batch that we sold of a, you know, it, it drew a lot of inspiration from Berliner Weisse, so we called it Berliner inspired. Uh, but spontaneously fermented still, uh, mm. as with everything from, from the beginning there. Uh, I think we were able to turn that around in about three to four months. Okay. Um, that was, I think, the quickest batch we've ever been able to do. <laughs> uh, it, but just remarkably, it, it actually attenuated, developed a character that we were uh, excited about and happy with earlier on. Sure. So uh, since then, even the quicker turnaround recipes typically were closer to six to 12 months with some in a shortly, slightly shorter timeline. But it's largely variable uh, as with everything spontaneously fermented you lack a lot of control the best you can do is coax as we matured as a brewery we kept devoting more and more uh, of our production uh, as responsibly as we could to still be able to you know sell some beer uh, to to run our business but devoting more and more towards longer age blends with the ultimate goal of ending up where we are now uh, where 95 percent of our beer is going to spend a minimum of one year in oak um, and the average beer that we release in 2018 is going to spend an average of uh, uh, two years in oak uh, in pursuit of what makes the best beer in that truest uh, expression. So, no, we, we, we've retired recipes that, that were well-received by um, a, a number of, of our fans. Yeah. That's never an easy uh, thing to do or decision to make. We wouldn't be here uh, but for the, uh, their support. Um, but at the same time, the reason we started this in the first place was to try and express the individuality of the Tewa, the location where we are, and to my palate, uh, to the best we can ascertain, much less fermentable uh, wort, uh, longer fermented and aged beers do a much better job of coaxing that character, of, of helping that character develop. Uh, so we wanted to express that. Um, if yeah, it, it, that wasn't really a, 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 it was hard to do, but really it wasn't a choice. I think that that's what we felt compelled to do. How do you, from a, a artistic creator slash business owner standpoint, balance what your consumers want against what your vision is and what you want to brew? Um, you know, there are a number of brewers that balance that in different ways, but for you, how do you do that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, topic. I mean, obviously Henry and I covered that on stage here at the uh, the retreat uh, just a, an hour or two ago. Yeah. Um, 
I don't very well. <laughs> <laughs> my my wife, being the um, drastically more pragmatic business person, um, coaxes me to make some concessions sometimes, but um, because she's the responsible one, right? I don't really make concessions. I think that I think that an honest pursuit of the best product that you as a person or a brewery can make uh, is always going to have some audience. It's never an easy or fun thing to potentially alienate any individual or group of customers, uh, people that are supporting you. But I also don't think that you're going to do your best work, that you're going to bring uh, the penultimate expression of your capabilities here to fruition if you're pursuing something that you yourself are not proud of and passionate about. Do you think that uh, consumers can taste that authenticity? You know, that uh, uh, if you were simply trying to create a product that's going to sell more, that they could sniff that out and it may not uh, approach, they may not be able to uh, engage with it in the same kind of way. Yeah, that's tough to say. You know, a lot of beers that I very much enjoy, I don't know that they have an individual character like that 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 they they don't have a relevance to anything else Uh, i think that the very best beers that uh, individually that i have enjoyed or the very best brewers that i respect uh, generally are in pursuit of a singular expression and i don't think that i know for a fact that the ones that i've talked to aren't just making beer to make beer or to please customers they're pursuing something uh i'd like to say more noble but that's probably not the right turn of phrase you know, you could look at it in music terms. You know, there are pop musicians that, that build songs that are built by formula because they're going to be radio hits, and you know, and that is what it is, and they can be very successful at that. But if you look at the artists that, you know, develop uh, long-standing, passionate audiences, uh, even if they're small audiences, um, doing and creating something that is exactly what you want it to be and that is heartfelt and uh, is your own creative expression... Uh, can build very you know significant hardcore fans, not because you're trying to find those fans, but because you are you're being authentic in that expression. Um, and it seems like those are you know some different you know approaches uh, that are also applicable to beer. No, you've got the uh, the earlier Beatles and you have the later Beatles, right? <laughs> Same band doing drastically different shit. Uh, right, right. I, I I favor the later stuff because I think that they were a much more uh, singular expression at that point. They they were doing something unique at the time. Uh, versus the earlier uh, pop stuff, I think was easily repeatable by a number of other people. Um, obviously, they both had huge amounts of fans. Uh, heck, I think the earlier stuff probably had a bigger fan base. I know a lot of the later work was more alienated to a group of people, but kind of in line with your music uh, analogy. So, you know, but people, you know, at the same time, musicians and brewers, too, they grow and they change, you know, expecting uh, someone to be the same thing. And this is, like, you know, if we're going to take that Beatles metaphor and move with it, um, you know, the Beatles in the 70s were not the same Beatles people that they were in the late 50s and 60s. Um, you know, and as those people change and as their influence and their context changes, uh, you know, naturally the, their creative expression is going to develop, you know, as well. How... You know, as you think about it, how have you changed in your context? How has that changed over the last, you know, five years of uh, operating, running a brewery? I guess it's six years now, but... Uh. Um, yeah, we're celebrating our fifth anniversary of oh, distribution okay. uh, starting uh, what is that, uh, next month, uh, right the first week of the month. Uh, 
which we celebrate the anniversary of distribution because we would have confused a lot of people when they might be trying their first beer of ours and right. like, hey, it's our first anniversary. Like, I've never heard of you. <laughs> um, it changed in a couple ways. It's a great question. Um, you know, one, we've, we've changed in, in palettes and what we want from a drinking experience. Um, I used to be more receptive to more aggressive beers, I think. Um, and I think it's in line with the market turning towards more aggressive beers being more common. I found myself moving away from them. Uh, I think they eliminate a lot of the social aspect of it. Uh, we've all overindulged on many occasions, but rarely have my favorite times over beer been one where, where I had overindulged. I prefer the conversation, conviviality, and, and, and uh, coherence uh, of beverages over a period of time. Um, in line of that, or in line with that, uh, I look at what I want out of life, and I think my wife is of a similar mind that we want to encourage good things in people and great experiences people. Uh, so we want to provide drinkable beer uh, in pursuit of balance, lower acid, uh, higher complexity, uh, more introspection that inspire conversation, but are also equally just as enjoyable and not interrupting conversation because they're not beating you over the head with like, oh, I have to say something like this is insane. Right. Um, trying to do good in life the same way a lot of other businesses operate. Uh, to provide a spark of something beautiful uh, in some small way, uh, well, seemingly inconsequential, I think, or inconsequential, I think, can provide an inspiration throughout the rest of the day, the week, whatever, uh, that ultimately can contribute towards positivity in a general way. Um, so trying to create beer that is excellent, yes, and better, yes, and more balanced, yes, and drinkable, but for an absolute uh, uh, directive of trying to do good. You mentioned less aggressive beer. The That brings to mind for me uh, some questions about consumption mode. Yeah, so for you as a brewery, uh, you and your wife have focused on keeping prices in a very manageable place so that people can drink these beers, you know, to a large degree as table beers, you know, they're under $20 a bottle, even for some of your hardest to get beers. Um, you know, in that, you know, but, it, but at the same time, you know, you have a large number of craft beer fanatics whose consumption mode is is sharing these beers within the context of a lot of other beers, you know. Um, and that, in some sense, has driven, I think, you know, some of that aggressiveness that uh, if you're drinking one of your beers in the context of 30 other beers and, you know, in one-ounce samples over the course of a night, the memorable things are not going to be necessarily the most subtle and uh, uh, complex and nuanced. The memorable ones are going to be those ag aggressive beers that kind of jump out of, you know, the overall din uh, of an experience like that. Um, but from a brewer's perspective, if you are focused on, you know, those you know, social media beer check-in reactions, you could find yourself leaning toward making those more aggressive beers. Um, but you all, from a value perspective, have instead focused on making those beers, again, less expensive so that people can enjoy them in those social you know, experiences that are you know, maybe small scale and uh, not have to feel like they have to share every beer with uh, you know 30 of their closest friends. 
Um, but from a brewing perspective, you know, how do, how do you deal with that? How uh, does that play any role in the way that you design these beers um, and the way that people consume them? Man, that sounds like a lot of different inquiries kind of wound into each other. I'm sorry uh, to make it that complex. I'll do my best. <laughs> um, it, well, where, where you started with pricing, it, it, I don't take any offense with how any other brewery prices their product sure. in, in the absence of uh, in the absence of a claim that it's of necessity uh, when it's demonstrably not. Uh, we charge what we have to charge to compensate uh, our team uh, very well uh, and to maintain our business. We did this as uh, out of passion um, and necessity for for ourselves, uh, not out of a you know pure business sense. Um, to that end, we charge as little as we have to versus as much as we can. Um, there's, I don't think anything inherently noble in that. It's just how we want to do business. Um, by most people's standards, that's terrible business. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, You're leaving money on the table, Trevor. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, I, I take more joy out of work, I think, than anything else in, in what we're doing now. What would more money get me? Um, as far as the tasting uh, more aggressive beers doing well. I mean, yeah, that's that's uh, been proven repeatedly. We've seen that in the wine industry in the rise of uh, some very prominent uh, critics where they're tasting through 50 to 100 wines, reviewing them, and of course the more aggressive ones, whether it be uh, sweeter uh, or more acid, um, they will tend to fare much better, particularly towards the end uh, or after you've sure. already had a few sure. different samples of something. Um, it's just the way your palate works. I'm okay with faring worse in a tasting where people are having a hundred sips of different beers um, because hell even if we were the one that they liked the most out of it I don't think that they would have gotten the full potential out of what we had crafted anyhow um, what I would prefer is that the um, we were providing the best experience for the folks who are sharing a bottle with a few friends uh, you know like we still will sit down and have a handful of beers with a group of people on sure. regular occasions those are the I relish those times um, but I think those are the times where the best beers, the most well-crafted expressions, uh, those, they shine in those uh, portrayals or those, those scenarios. You've talked to me before about some of your influences you know, out there in the world of beer. And uh, when we talked about your, your dream six-pack for craft beer and brewing, uh, it was uh, almost entirely, uh, or actually I should say three, 50% of yours, Oh yeah, it was Belgian lambic and goose. Um, was it that much? I think it was. Yeah, that was a hard list to put together. To be <laughs> fair, I could have come up with some different uh, variations, but yeah, yeah. But you you drink a lot more than that. Um, oh, you I know, definitely drink a lot. And uh, you know, and I think folks have this idea, you know, that you might be that uh, you know that that studious professor that pursues this this beer. But you also have a, a sweet spot for for even things like uh, you know hazy IPAs and uh, you know and a whole lot of lagers. Hell yeah! I think you saw my uh, eyes light up when uh, Henry was sharing uh, some monkish on stage there. Even though it had Galaxy in it. Yeah. Well, he's the one brewery that makes Galaxy beers that I can enjoy. Okay. Um, you know, we it, should explain that to folks. You you do have an issue with the Galaxy Hop. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, I know they're incredibly popular, and I am an outlier on this, but it, it's almost like a physical reaction. It induces nearly a gag reflex uh, for heavily hopped Galaxy-focused beers. Uh, it's weird. I don't understand it. Um, yeah, but I, I, I'll own it. What do you have against Australians, Trevor? <laughs> 
I, you know, I don't know too many Australians. And okay. I've never been over there, so I guess I'm just like building up a pre a hatred ahead of time, prepared. All right, all right. Yeah. Some some someone's going to reach out and change your mind on this. Yeah. I guess I guess Henry already has. But. Yeah. No, I, I you know, and I think one of the reasons he's more educated on the types of beers he makes, obviously. Yeah. Uh, when he was talking about the time that they spend cold conditioning trying to uh, mellow the uh, uh, acids contributed by the hops and the character. I think that's the likely reason why I can enjoy his, where it's not um, a rush-through process. He's trying to make the best beer he can versus the most lucrative amount of beer he, that he can. Um, well, it, I think that shows in the finished product, where even his heavily galaxy-hopped ones, I can still thoroughly enjoy. Sure. But, um, you know, back to your question about, like, you know, I do like good beer in general. Um, I like good wine. I like good food. I, I don't think there's a... A constraint on appreciation of any individual uh, style or, or representation. Um, a passionately crafted product will almost always be enjoyable to me, and I think to most people. Certainly, we each have palate preferences. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of cucumbers. <laughs> okay. You know, for example, so if you serve me a dish that's predominantly composed of cucumbers, yeah. I'm not going to love that, even if I can respect that uh, as a well-crafted cucumber dish. Uh, so yeah, somebody that's that's putting their their heart and soul into what they're making, it's probably going to be something that's pretty enjoyable, unless it's made with cucumbers. And you've uh, I've noticed over the last couple of days, uh, you drink quite a few lagers. Um, yeah. We were at Live Oak yesterday, and uh, you know a fantastic lager maker. We're drinking some uh, some Austin Beer Garden Pilsner right One of now. My favorite breweries, really? Oh yeah, man. The uh, the. I mean, Austin Beer Garden is fantastic, too. Do, do not get me wrong, sure. but uh, Live Oak, uh, I, I think there is soul in their beer, you know? Uh, that was, their, their uh, Hefeweizen was on uh, the list that I gave you for the, the yeah. Desert Island beers and whatnot. Um, I think that's uh, represented by, by Chip uh, there, and uh, kind of flows down through him, uh, through his people, and into the beer. Like, there's they're, they're soul and uh, uh, brightness in those, and uh, obviously a, a continual pursuit of perfection. Um, not by intent, but out of necessity, I think, by, you know, from the top down. And a, a similar um, approach to making the beers that they want to make, you know, even when commercial uh, constraints are, are considered, and that uh, they have a strange dedication to smoked beers. Uh, Chip yesterday was saying to us that uh, he's going to make smoked beers until, until people start to drink them. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it's, you know, they, they've got things that make the money and then they have the beers they want to make because they just want to make them uh, even if people don't want to buy them yeah you know i think the, the that pursuit of uh, smoked beer perfection there and the repeated brewing and experimentation within that underlines their continual pursuit of their ideals uh, and i think that's why i love what they do so much uh, it's not we're gonna make great lager just because or we're gonna you know make great lager that will sell well it's like i'm going to do something beautiful today Let's shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about your process, you know, for, for beers. Now, again, you know, with your current crop of spending two years on average uh, in wood, um, what do your recipes look like? Um, you know, how do you use hops to manage some of that acidity and how that develops in that culture? How, how have you found, and this is going to, you know, these, these are different things for brewers yeah. wherever they are. Well, before you keep going too long, because okay, you've got two the, questions I'm gonna already. I'm going to layer 10, yeah, 10 things onto this and question. And then I'm going to forget what the second one was <laughs> by the time I get to the 10th, you know? Sure, um, sure. It, 
acidity is a continual battle um, to get to that one first we uh, I don't think we, we shoot to make sour beer or acid beer it is a byproduct of how we make our beer in pursuit of complexity um, and representation of place it's a something that we ha- try and temper as much as we can and it's a continual pursuit uh, folks that have been drinking our beer uh from the similar, like, say, the, we have a series of beers that start with the. Uh, right. If you've been consuming those over the years since we first started releasing them, you'll have noticed a continual uh, decrease in the perceived and total acidity of the beers themselves. Um, that's still continual. I don't think we're quite there, although a lot of the beers are, are pretty happy making to me at this point. But, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to coax that in. As far as recipe and how we address that, um, the hopping rate is one of the biggest ones. Uh, so we have slowly and continually increased our, our use of uh, aged hops, which do provide a, a fair bit of uh, uh, IBU still and uh, preservative character along with antibacterial properties. Um, we've transitioned our oak vessels, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, uh, into larger formats, which are much more expensive. <laughs> Uh, so our uh, smallest vessels that we're targeting right now are 500 liter oak puncheons uh, versus 225 liter uh, wine barrels, which are cheap and easy to procure. Sure. Um, with the half of our capacity now and 1,000 and 2,000 liter oak casks. So, but well, why do that? You know, yeah. and, and I mean, there are, you know, from a brewery, from a production <laughs> standpoint, well, certainly more efficient to use larger vessels, but it's a way cheaper to use smaller wine barrels if you look at, you know, cost per well, liter. There are pluses and minuses. If you um, have a wine barrel go south on you, it's a lot cheaper to replace it too. Yeah. Um, but no, we, we pursue these slightly larger vessels, um, not going to the extreme. We're actually selling off 392 barrel fooders and like, nope, too big, back off. Uh, the larger vessels have a lower surface to volume ratio. They're less oxidative during aging. Um, so that they produce a more gentle acid profile uh, in favor of a more delicate uh, and nuanced expression of uh, Pretanomyces, uh, particularly. Uh, do keep some standard size wine barrels around, but they're gin barrels uh, from Ransom Distilling, who's just up the road from us. Uh, we really love their old Tom Gin, and contrary to most wine barrels, even though they're the same size, those ex Pinot Noir barrels that they then aged their gin in, uh, I'm assuming it's an antibacterial property in some of their botanical blend, rarely develop uh, an aggressive acidity. Hmm. So we'll always keep those around when we can procure some of them. Yeah. But from a production standpoint, you know, certainly more labor involved in racking out of those smaller you know, barrels. Um, but from a cost perspective, yeah, they, they kind of balance each other out. I think okay. like the cost of replacing larger vessels is higher. The maintenance and, and production costs of, of filling, uh, emptying and just maintaining uh, smaller vessels is higher. Yeah. Uh, I think over time they kind of average out a bit more. Uh, certainly it's easier to, if you need something on the fly, get some standard size wine barrels from a reputable winery or source, right. uh, to, to fill in a gap uh, if we have some punch-ins that go south and we retired i think 12 of them last week hmm. uh, it'll be months before we can find that quantity again uh, if not longer you just mentioned that you found what 92 hectoliter fooders too large 92 H- barrel or 92 barrel okay yeah we we brought them in um 
the anticipation was that we would um, run some beers through there that we could use the economy of scale to offer beer for a lower price, um, have have an even more affordable option. Um, it turned out that I didn't love the beers that we were getting out of them as much. Huh. Um, I think that the expression of our beers when they are blended, um, taking multiple different ages, multiple different batches, and trying to create a harmonious union is a better expression than a single mm. fermentation vessel. And since we don't have 184 barrel blending tanks, pretty much a 92 barrel tank is what you get. Right. Okay. <laughs> and even then, that's a, a multiple days of packaging uh, off of that. You know, we're running that into a blending tank. Blending tank when it's not actually being blended; it's just transferred over for that. Right. Uh, and then packaging that. Uh, it also just it decreased the quality of life for for our team. Um, nobody likes running. A fairly manual packaging uh, setup for three or four days straight for eight hours a day uh, and a lot of the choices we do make uh, as, as long as it's still in pursuit of making the best beer that we can are to provide a quality of life to our team uh, so that they can come into work excited every day and you know devote their attentions to trying to do good and do well uh, for the beer versus just not being stoked on being there so you design, you know, products and processes around employee happiness in addition to end product taste? We'll sacrifice some efficiencies as a business to make sure that we're taking the best care of our employees that we can. Um, we, we salary all of our staff from day, day one, uh, and we work everybody 40 hours a week. Uh, that's pretty uncommon in a lot of breweries, sure, in most sure. breweries now. Um, you know, we have uh, friends that... that uh, regularly working like 60, 80 hours, uh, putting in like 12 to 16 hour days on occasion. Um, I, I don't think that's conducive to having like a healthy personal life, which I, you know, in our experience from not having that when we first started our career and having, being understaffed and undercapitalized, uh, I don't think you can do your best work in those conditions. Though you can do a lot more work if you spend a lot more time, but the quality of work itself, I think suffers and therefore the product and since we're all in our brewery, uh, every one of us, to do the best we can, not just as much as we can, we want to encourage that type right. of work. Right. Do you, you brew year-round? We do not. Um, we've slowly been trimming it back. We used to occasionally uh, knock out a couple batches during the warmer months. Um, we found that uh, at least half of those barrels were ultimately getting dumped uh, for being too uh, aggressively acidic. Um, and... Uh, uh, we wanted to produce more balanced beer, of course. So as a business decision, that's a terrible one. Um, but in pursuit of greater beer, uh, we, we brew for, I'm thinking we'll see about six months this year, uh, okay. which is longer, I think, than uh, most of the, the Belgians are brewing now or somewhere in line with that, I suppose. But our average temperature has been increasing in our area uh, mm. pretty significantly too. Uh, so we've been trimming back not just... Uh, from the hottest months, but from the ones on either side of that as well, um, where we might not be dumping half of the beer, but it's still a too significant portion. And the ones that, well, fine, uh, fine isn't good enough. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't think I followed through on the thought uh, completely about the larger vessels. So the oxidative capabilities uh, of smaller barrels, um, in and of itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You take a you know, a bourbon barrel aged strong ale of some nature, 
um, some of the oxidative reactions that happen in that barrel are of benefit to that beer over time as long sure. as it's not too aggressive. Um, for us, because of how we inoculate our beer, there is a Cetobacter in there. So one of our challenges is to, well, one, it can't be hot, and right. two, we can't have too much oxygen, the two uh, things that Acetobacter requires yep. to produce acetic acid, you know, vinegary character. Uh, the larger vessels maintain temperature much better. Mm. Uh, they're less oxidative, so we're removing the two things that, that produce acetic acid. So even in beers where that acetic level was below threshold, um, if you have more in there, it will contribute to an overall impression of greater acidity. Um, so we're trying to combat that. Right. I, I think some amount of, of acetic acid uh, is essential to the character, uh, even in the best uh, lambic and goose. Obviously, more pronounced in uh, you know Flanders, uh, of course, acid beers. Um, but we want to have the overall impression be more delicate. You have moved from brewing more year round to now knowing what your brewing window is. <clears throat> Uh, approximately approximately yeah. and and that will most likely also continue to change um, but there's certainly a lag time between when you do brew and when you can taste enough of an effect of what that temperature may have had on that beer how long I mean are we talking a couple of months I mean you are you're gonna brew in and then uh, you know and, and start sampling that beer and say hey listen, you know, these, this kind of temperature is, is just not going to work for us and you, you will then have to dump that beer. How long do you sit around and have to wait to have that knowledge? Well, we don't taste anything uh, until a bare minimum of three months in oak um, at that point. So you will waste three months on that beer as it sits in, in wood yeah. before you're going to make any, even your first judgment on that. The vast majority of beer that we produce, yeah. we won't even try in the first year. Wow. Um, that's pretty much the youngest thing that we work with at this point. Uh, the youngest component, um, and I think any time you are jostling a barrel, um, working on a barrel, you're just dis disrupting what is otherwise a fairly peaceful slumber, uh, conducive to making a very gradual progression of character. Right. Um, so you can be as gentle as you want. I think it still uh, cumulatively can be detrimental to the final product. Sure. Uh, so yeah, that's why it's such a long product process for us to make any uh, incremental changes in the brewery. Um, you know, if we up our hopping rate yet again, uh, which I don't think is going to happen, I'm pretty happy with what we've been seeing. Uh, we won't have the final outcome from that for quite some time. But to the summer brewing uh, or warmer temperature brewing, it's pretty easy to ascertain uh, if you pull a sample from a vessel in that first year, um, if it's already notably acidic, it's going to be too acidic. Uh, we don't expect a, a large development of acidity uh, as we are currently brewing um, in that beer until much later in its timeline as Pediococcus asserts itself. Um, if you have lactobacillus or other bacterial contributions earlier on, it's because you just had way too damn much bacteria in the environment. Um, attributed largely to warm weather in that right. case. That's an interesting piece. And, um, you know, and I guess one worth kind of exploring a little bit, you, what you're saying there is, is something that we know a bit from Lambic and Goose that, uh, dramatically under inoculating these beers with, you know, spontaneous culture actually, um, yeah, produces more, uh, pleasant characters in those beers over the long run. That having too much presence of additional bacteria uh, mm -hmm. actually uh, is a negative thing. Yeah, no, I, I again, 
I think most uh, uh, Lambic uh, brewers and blenders would tell you that they're not in pursuit of acids. Most of them are, are still continuing to dial back the levels of acidity in their beers as well. Yeah. Um, to the chagrin of, of a number of uh, consumers over there, uh, you talk to some of the uh, older drinkers and they're effing pissed because <laughs> this is not what I grew up with. Right. Um, it, it, acid's a byproduct and something to be tempered, uh, you know, encourage nature in a uh, pure expression of location versus a pure expression of a couple bacterial strains. Um, you know, a more complex profile. So, yeah, we uh, we don't expect an early development of acidity. If it's there, yeah. then the further progression of that is going to happen still. I mean, Pediococcus, which has a longer leg because of the diminutive cell counts, a longer reproductive timeline, um, it's not going to not produce acid, you know, in the 8 to 16 months, uh, at least at our brewery uh, of aging, because lactobacillus created a bunch of lactic acid at the beginning, it's just going to throw more at it. Um, so the, yeah, a concentration uh, of bacteria during warmer weather will, by necessity, like lead to an average lower quality in our eyes of beer. Is there something to that that low amount of you know bacteria that allows uh, specific ones to outcompete over that long run? You know that uh, because we're you're, you're in a lot of ways you know you know dramatically under pitching anything when you spontaneously inoculate, um, it provides a much longer runway for the small amounts of the bacteria that that do end up in that wort uh, to establish and create something without being outcompeted by some of those negative forces that you're talking about. Certainly, there's um. You know, I think there's been a reasonable amount of study done on uh, lambic fermentations. Uh, we certainly have had a lab poll, uh, some stuff uh, from ours as well. But you, you see that slower progression of different organisms over a longer period of time that I think uh, is a necessary route to getting a better expression, a more um, unique expression from the beer itself. So, you know, it, it's fairly well understood at this point that you have uh, an early enteric uh, fermentation. Right. Um, a very you know, not good, unhealthy fermentation uh, unless you pre-acidify uh, the wort. Uh, since we're adverse to adding shit to our beer, <laughs> we don't. Um, yeah. It's so you end up with a, a that enteric fermentation later. Uh, Saccharomyces, potentially some lactobacillus, start acting upon the wort. Uh, you know, within the few months, um, and then you move on to a Pediococcus and Bertanomyces dominated phase. Um, we haven't found, on average, that uh, any of the, the three um, Britannomyces uh, unique to our environment uh, are particularly dominant uh, until at least a year in, and most of the time their best expression comes well after that. One of the challenges, you know, when we talk about spontaneous beer, um, and we'll wrap this up, we won't dig into this too deeply, one of the challenges, um, you know, that I hear from other brewers is... Uh, uh, that even when you start talking about Belgian lambic and goose, there are a variety of different um, processes around sanitation and different mentalities towards what they even consider spontaneous fermentation. There are certain lambic and goose makers in Belgium that uh, clean their barrels with chains, and there are others that uh, rinse with hot water, and then there are those that uh, you know fully steam and you know completely kill 
everything in their wood before uh, you know uh, before they add a, a new spontaneously well, as uh, close as possible anyway I've yet to find a barrel that somebody can sure, make a sure, sterile sure um, you know but there is some thought that you know while there's a claim of spontaneity to you know to some of these processes not all of them are as spontaneous you know quote unquote as others are um, you know your what does your process look like on that and uh, where is that balance between pure spontaneous inoculation and uh, you know realistically legitimately you know keeping some sort of uh, house flavor and culture you yeah. know moving forward it's an interesting discussion um, you certainly can have a pure spontaneous fermentation uh, having done it in stainless on a smaller scale uh, we don't in our brewery obviously uh, we find sanitation and cleanliness to be as important for us at least um, and I think uh, our, our favorite brewers and blenders uh, seem to be some of the more cleanly clean ones uh, on average it, what we don't want the same way we don't want a bacterial dominance from brewing during hot weather we don't want a, a single culture asserting dominance during the fermentation um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make bad beer but I think that it is a less uh, great uh, expression than the delicate interplay of multiple different organisms over a longer period of time. Uh, so to eliminate the possibility of having a monoculture assert dominance in any fermentation, you have to be clean and sanitary. How do you do that with wood? Uh, I think we all have different processes to do it. Uh, we don't steam. Um, multiple reasons, but uh, I, I, I do believe that our procedure is a very effective way at getting uh, as sanitary a barrel as possible. Um, we touched on earlier during the conversation uh, inside, but uh, we'll go through and take a, well, take a 500 liter punchin, for example. Uh, we'll take a spray ball uh, under high pressure, 192 Fahrenheit water, uh, and wash that aggressively uh, with half of the total volume of the barrel. So 250 liters going into a 500 liter. Uh, that uh, tracks with the different size vessel. So we'll double it for twice that size, quadruple it for four times the size. Uh, after that, we'll refill it with uh, entirely with 192 Fahrenheit water. So even with the temperature sink of the wood, uh, you've already taken away a lot of the temperature differential just by running that half the volume through there. Um, the wood on the exterior is at a sanitary temperature. Uh, do I believe that kills everything? Like, well, I can prove it doesn't, but uh, right. it's about as close as you can possibly get. Um, when we're ready to fill it, we'll empty it. Uh, if it's been sitting there for more than a day, we'll re-rinse again with that half the volume. Uh, and then cool uh, for you know at least an hour so that we're not running cool ward into a hot barrel. Right. Um, it seems to, to track well. We have some amount of consistency in our ferment and we see uh, not a lot of um, fermentation that's derived from a singular organism. It's a, you can track progression over time which I don't believe happens the same way when you do have a dirty barrel or a single uh, yeast or bacteria that is doing the bulk of the work. Interesting. So what's next? What's on the horizon for DeGuard? What, what is uh, exciting you the most these days? And uh, on the flip side of that, what keeps you up at night? I think it's the same answer to both. You know, uh, um, I'm always excited for barrels, blends, and such that we have. Like trying to do better, trying to make um, excellent beer. Uh, I stay up at night worrying that that's not happening or that you know it's not going to happen. Uh, that some 
something out of my control, uh, whether it be natural or, or um, uh, economic, is going to remove my ability to to continue in the pursuit of continually uh, offering better beer to people. Economic, what do you mean by that? Um, if we had some devastating natural disaster that, you know, wasn't for some reason covered by our insurance. If uh, consumers decided someday that, wow, Trevor makes terrible beer. His team also is just not keeping him in check. They're doing terrible work. Um, that is largely out of my control again because we're pursuing what we think the best expression we can present is um, and not necessarily targeting what the broadest consumer base uh, is going to to be appreciative of. Uh, so economic side. So you are still saying that despite your position in the, the world of, of spontaneous and uh, wild and sour beer in America, you worry about uh, you know people continuing to care about your business? I, I worry about people continuing to care about the beer. Okay. Uh, you know, as long as the business can pay its bills and we can take care of uh, our, our folks with us, uh, then I don't really care about the business side of it. I mean, we're doing this for the beer. Uh, I guess that's inherently tied to the business, don't get me wrong, but I, I think there is a difference. Um, no, I, I don't think I'll ever reach a point of comfort where we, we're doing well enough and uh, there's not room for improvement and a necessary need for improvement. Um, and I've gotten that from, you know, shit, some of my idols in the industry. Uh, I think uh, the, the first time I made it over to Belgium, um, you know, uh, Armand de Belder at Three Fontaine was kind enough to take quite a lot of time talking about process and and his thoughts on, on on beer and the industry itself, and one of the last things he said was that you know uh, you can never be a good brewer if you think you're making good beer. Like, I agree. Um, if you are content, then you will never do better, and are quite likely to just start doing worse. That sounds like a fantastic place to wrap this up. What, a, <laughs> what an interesting and, and beautiful sentiment, all at the same time. Trevor, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. If, where do people go to learn more about DeGard Brewing? Uh, you know, Tillamook would be the natural uh, <laughs> place to go. Um, our, our new tap room just opened out there, uh, along with our new uh, brewing facility. Uh, not a massive expansion, but it's a, a heck of a lot better place for us to, to take care of people that do make the drive out. Um, our website has a little bit of information. Uh, we're, we're pretty low uh, priority on uh, social media, unfortunately. But you can always email us if you have any questions. Uh, and we, we try and be as responsive as possible as a small team. Fair enough. Well, thank you for joining me today. This episode has been brought to you by craftbeer.com, home of the most mouth-watering map in the world, the map of U.S. breweries. If you find yourself in a new city and want to sample the local flavors, or if you just want to marvel at the vast American beer landscape, visit craftbeer.com. Join us next week for another episode. Thanks again, Trevor. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrewing.